look at Chit Nhat Hanh in the, the Vietnam War was very intense in the bombing. And so what he did was instead of just sitting in the monastery, and he decided to go outside to the village to rescue these people, to help these people who were poor, who were hurt. Buddhism is not like for the elite. It's not about sitting inside the monastery. I mean, granted, that's necessary, but I think we need to apply and bring that compassion and offer that to the folks who need it. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 108, The Prisoners, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Venerable De Hong, co-founder of the Engaged Buddhist Alliance. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. My father was a United States Marine that served as a combat engineer in the Vietnam War. On January 21, 1968, he was on the Marine base at Khe Sanh, getting a short reprieve from the horrors of war. It was the Lunar New Year and the beginning of the Tet holiday. A ceasefire was about to begin, or at least that's what he thought. Instead, it was the beginning of a massive attack on the United States forces by the Communist forces of North Vietnam. He spoke of it often, and as a young boy, I could barely enlarge my imagination enough to encompass what he shared. The siege finally ended in July the same year. The miseries of the Vietnam War would leave a lasting impact on my daddy, the United States, and citizens of Vietnam who were soon to live under the iron boot of a North Vietnamese communist regime. My guest and I did not speak about this during our visit. Instead, What I heard was his account of being a five-year-old boy living in the shadow of the Vietnam War. During the holiday of Tet, while my father was fighting in a foxhole at Khe Sanh, my guest, then only five years old, was being rushed from his bed in the middle of the night by his mother and father, pillow in hand, the evening sky illuminated by thunderous munitions, the sharp cracks of gunfire, and the circadian hum of helicopters flying overhead. These sounds would leave trauma in the minds of both he and my father, and it would lead them both down completely different paths. In this episode, I am honored to share my conversation with Venerable De Hong, the co-founder of the Engaged Buddhist Alliance, a Buddhist organization that works with individuals in the California prison system, helping them to cultivate mindfulness and meditation practices. Dae Hong's journey from Vietnam to California is difficult to fathom, as I was born with some degree of privilege. At the age of 18, escaping communist Vietnam with his younger brother, Dae Hong became a refugee. At the mercy of strangers, he navigated the difficulties of immigrating to the United States. With no working knowledge of English and only $10 to his name, he eventually graduated college, became a U.S. citizen, and acclimated to American life. And it is there that it seems his Dharma path began. Like many of us in the United States, he became overworked and overwhelmed, eventually finding refuge in Buddhism, the religion of his homeland, taking the ordination vows and training of a Buddhist monk. Informed by the teachings of the Buddha, Venerable De Hong was drawn to enter the prison systems and serve those that society has deemed irredeemable. His tools are direct and simple, but have had a profound impact on the lives of those he serves. De Hong feels strongly that the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, are a bell of mindfulness that reminds us to look directly into the suffering of the world and offer a way out of the suffering to apply the great medicine of compassion. 
With letters, books, meditation training, and the gift of presence, Day Hong and the Engaged Buddhist Alliance helps turn the wheel away from unspeakable trauma, helping prisoners find their original good nature, and allowing them to begin the process of touching the world with more loving hands, hearts, and minds. One day at a time, one being at a time, the venerable Day Hong transmutes and transforms the old migratory trauma of war-torn landscapes into pure lands of joy. Connected across space and time, by war and religion, I am happy to call him my friend and my true brother. Now, it's time to learn how trauma passes through cultures, across borders, into bloodlines, over oceans, and takes root in prisons. Understanding that no matter what pain we've experienced, there is always hope for change. Then tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up, it's morning. Dreaming up the story I can hear. The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep. On the path to your deliverance in a holy ball of light. Old news, bad news. Fake news? Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. I think what I would like to do, if you don't mind, is if you could just for a moment uh, tell my listeners who you are from your perspective, and then we can dive in from there. You know, who am I talking to today? Okay. All right. Well, uh, my name is Di Hong. Uh, I was born and raised in Vietnam. I was born in Saigon, the former capital of, the, of South Vietnam. Uh, ethnically, I'm Chinese because my father escaped China when he was 13. Really? Uh, yeah, during the famine after World War II okay. to Vietnam. Wow. <laughs> my, grand, my mom's parents, yeah, my mom's parents escaped at the same time also from, from China all the way down to the southern part of Vietnam. Okay. And they settled there, and that's. And my mom was born in Vietnam, but uh, ethnically, we are Chinese. We have a, a different dialect, other than it, that is not Cantonese, it's not Mandarin. Okay. Yeah. So I was born uh, before the fall of the government of uh, of the former government. Okay. And I grew up in the city. I was quite. I was raised quite, if I may say, shallow because my parents would not allow me to associate with the neighbors. 
Oh, really? It was it was a rough neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this? But so, so for the listener, what year are we talking about? I mean, what time oh. frame? Okay, well, I was born in 1963. 63, okay. And, yes, and and so from 1963 to 1975, that's when it was still under the rule of the former South Southern uh, government. Okay. Um, 1968, I also want to bring up, 1968, we had, because of the uh, Tet Offensive. Yep. The bombing and the fighting, the bombing between the U.S., and the communist government, it was so close to the city. Really? And, yes. And so what? at the time, I was five years old. Wow. And I still remember for during the Lunar New Year, this time, I, I, my parents would wake me up every night by 11 or midnight. And I would grab my pillow and put on my sandals. And my mom was pregnant at the time. I think she was five or five months or six months pregnant. And I also had a, a two-year-old brother. Mm. So my dad was holding the two-year-old brother and then grabbed me. And my mom was pregnant and walking. We would walk for at least an hour to an area where it would be safe. And we would crash into the street. Wow. And then, that... yeah, when sun, uh, when the sun rose, uh, we would walk back. We did that for a month. Wow. So y'all were getting prepared, like, uh, to evacuate, essentially, every night. Every night. Every night. And what got me, what this, I had a bit of PTSD, and it was because of the bombing. No the doubt. Sound. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. And and growing up, even when after I came to America, I did not know that where you know like when I hear something, I would get like this. Mm. And and you know that's why I don't like helicopters, fire fireworks. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. So that was one thing. And and then it happened again in 1972. Um, so this and, is towards and, the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, or at least the American presence in Vietnam. Correct. They would start, you know, to slowly with, you know, withdrew from from Vietnam, and then by '75, that's when the 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 communist government, you know, officially took over. And and here's another thing that that happened to me, <laughs> like I went to I finished elementary school in Chinese. We learned Mandarin. Okay. And at home, we learned another the, our own dialect. It's called Chaozhuhua. That's the you know, and and we spoke. We didn't speak much Vietnamese, even though I was uh, able to, and I still can. Um, but then after the communists took over, they wiped out all education. Everything was in Vietnamese, so ah. I had to start learning Vietnamese all over at, a whole other language in junior high. It's like. <sighs> Really, that's why I didn't do too well with it regarding to uh, you know writing composition. Yeah, well, I mean, you're having to, you've lived a decade and a half, you know, with one language. I mean, you know, in those formative years, and then now mm -hmm. here you go. You're told no, you're going to learn yeah. this language. It's the law, the language of the land now Correct. imposed upon you. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So after they took over, and it was life was so tough that by by 1981, when I turned 18. I was being drafted to fight China. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And the irony. They, I mean. Correct. You know, in, in 1979, don't forget that in 1979, there was a skirmish. You know, there was some fighting between at the border already. 
And, and, you know, so by 1981, we had to, uh, my mom, my parents had to make the decision either let me being drafted to the army to fight China or, or let him go, you know. So we were lucky that um, a family from my mom's, my parents' friend uh, recommend, you know, they knew of a contact. So uh, I, I skipped kind of illegally on a boat mm-hmm. uh, out of Vietnam in late September 1981. 1981. This is you and your brother, correct? Yes, my younger brother, uh, his name is Dennis. He was five years old. He, he was the one that my mom was pregnant with. Well, during, your, during those night <laughs> during, uh, <laughs> excursions out for pre- preparing to evacuate. Yeah, so 1968. You, I have yeah. to tell you this. I... I don't want to derail what you're talking about, but you know, I after I read your story about the boat and the experience mm-hmm. on the boat, and I know there's only a little bit of information online about that, but yeah, every uh, drink of water that I have taken has been precious to me. I, I just I shared last night with my son. Actually, I said, you know, just a little piece of your story. I said, you know, we take for granted. I walk to my refrigerator and fill up a water bottle. And I drink at my leisure, but your story just has been echoing around in my mind, just these, you know, three teaspoons a day. And if you could share that, I mean, I know that's an old, probably in the past for you, and, and it's something you're, you've moved past, but uh, if you could share that, I think it might even be useful to some people. Sure, sure. Um, we were, so we were on, we did, I didn't know where we were going, you know. Oh, you didn't uh, know where you were being taken? <laughs> correct. Oh. There, um, on, on the boat. On you the know, boat, right, on, okay. On the boat. It was so tiny that uh, there, uh, the only space that I have was just sitting with my knees, you know, uh, cling to, you know, clung together. I wow. could, I could barely having my feet, you know, my legs uh, reach out. That's that's how it was the whole time. And how long uh, is this time period? Six days six and five days. nights. Wow. Yes, and not only that, I was sitting at the lower deck, so if I get up. I would hit the 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 wood the the ceiling oh. above me where people were sitting up above me. Wow! And the whole six days I was right. So you I were was, below deck for six days. Yeah, it was quite uh, what they call like, suffocating, you know. But so the first we 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 get out to at night, you know, because that's how you could get out. So the the officers looking at, I mean, we get out through the bay of Saigon at at. The water there, not mm. not through uh, at near the end of Vietnam. So um, the first two days, because we were kind, I was I guess kind of seasick, so I didn't pay attention. And luckily, there were a, a couple jugs of water, so we were kind of get it to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, we get something to drink and water. And then when the captain he found out about it, he took it. He took both of that away. So from day three to day six, uh, we were given a spoon of water three times a day. And, you know, I did not bring anything with me. I I, I had a short, I put on a short, two pairs of pants. Because in Vietnam, if you cannot carry anything at the time. If you carry a luggage, a small bag or something, you would be caught. Oh, it's like signaling. They're looking for people who are trying to escape. Correct, correct. Ah, I see, okay. So I had to put everything uh, that, that uh, I had to wear everything. Ah, so that was it. What you had on you and your brother was the same way, I assume. Correct, 
Yes, and and so um, my and that that was one thing. So I, we didn't have any container to get the water. So the lady next to me, she had this aluminum can. So I had to borrow it from her, and I would drink it, and then I would get another spoon for my younger brother who was um, thirteen at the time. Thirteen. Wow. Yeah, and we did that for uh, until the fifth day when. And not only that, I was so thirsty, and this is going to gross people out. I need, and I was having a fever. Mm, sure. You know, um, and I was, so I looked at people, so I tried, I could reach, get my hand on the sea water, and I touch it, and I taste it. It was, because it was so salty that it was quite bitter. It's mm. like, so I couldn't drink it. And guess what? I uh, what other people did? Mm. They use a plastic bag and they pee and they drink that. They were that thirsty. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and and, and urine was actually better than than the, <laughs> the seawater. Sea. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, yeah. I, it's so easy to take for granted the luxuries that we have. You know, to walk in and oh, yeah. turn a tap on and drink water. <laughs> Uh, I imagine an experience like that just changes you in a way that is hard to really put words on. I mean, every mm -hmm. everything that just that those five days and six nights. Yeah. So, so I, I asked for a plus. I bought a plastic bag. I turn around. I pee, and I taste it, and it was quite nasty. I couldn't. I couldn't. You know. So I gave it to two twin brothers, and they were fighting over it. Wow. That's yeah. how thirsty they were. When, when you are in desperation, you just, you would do whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, they were twins. And it was sad, but, you know, they had it. So by the fifth day, um, actually on the fourth day, there was some, uh, we ran into a, uh, a business ship. Mm. Who, you know, so they gave us some water. So they we did. were able oh. to have some, yes. And then on the fifth day, there was rain coming down. Ah, so they use plastic bags, <laughs> you know. So I try to get up on on the second on the upper deck and just get my face so so that water rain can drop on my face. Man, yeah, it's really hard. I I, I mean, look. The truth is, I when I when I even hearing these details, <laughs> I mean, any human situation like this. I mean, I try to put myself in it, and I can't. I can all I can do is imagine it because I think of my most destitute day and it doesn't even come close you know and so i really can't all i can do is um you have to open i guess open your mind and heart to to try to put yourself there and at least offer some kind of remorse or remorseful love i mean because i can't you can't go through it but it i should i guess in the in you sharing it i hope it changes me is I guess where I'm going is listening to you share it. I hope I will uh, use it as a lens to appreciate the things I yeah. have. I mean, you know, that's what, you know, a side note. That's why, like, when I see the Syrian refugees or the uh, undocumented immigrants, I, I, I had tears in my eyes, and it's like I wish I could do something, you know, mm -hmm. but I. I don't have the time or the energy. Sure, uh, that's the one thing. And, and but coming back to the story, so after, so by then on the by the sixth day, we were rescued by the uh, Malaysian Coast Guard. 
Okay. Yeah, and and we were put on uh, a bus, and two days later they took us to a an island. That's where they housed the Vietnamese refugees, uh, which were supported by the UN. Okay. Yeah. So so for six days without food, and when I got to the uh, the island, I would eat six times a day with just a big, you know, each time a big bowl of rice and some soy sauce and mm. some oil. Uh, I would eat at six, at nine, at 12, at three, at six, and at nine. For my body to get back to, I guess, no, uh, you know, normal. Yeah. Yeah, it took two weeks. <laughs> wow, two weeks. I mean, and so, I mean, was there a system in place there? I'm assuming they were with some sort of an influx of refugees that they were prepared yes. for. Yes, yes. I mean, it's just an island where the UN, you know, have their staff and and to to help manage and watch over, you know, would oversee everyone. Yeah. Okay. And 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 from there, that's how the um, other countries would come and accept the refugees. I see. So you'd get like a sponsor or something like that, or. <laughs> Correct. And, and here's the interesting point. I tried to apply for, I mean, at the time, I had no clue, you know, I not even speaking English. And, and I applied for Canada, I got rejected just because uh, they, they didn't want to take in young men with a bunch of young men, you know, they want sure. they prefer to have family. And then the same thing with Australia. So, you know, I was desperate. So I wrote to two cousins. Okay. Uh, from my two aunts, and you know, their mothers were my mom's older sisters. I see. And okay. I, so yeah, and I wrote to my one cousin who still lives here in LA, and he said, "Oh well, you and I, we don't have the last, the same last name. I cannot sponsor you." I'm like, "That's baloney." Oh, well, I don't want to go. To... <laughs> That's uh, you know, like <laughs> you're my cousins. Right. And, yeah, I get quite upset i and i'm still i'm i'm not mad but i don't want to deal with these sort of people because you know you were my you are my cousins right and then i did the same thing to my cousin in australia and she said oh i understand that you it's going to be tough for you you know hang in there when you are on when you are boarding the flight i would send you money to buy uh, a winter coat and it was like why do I need a winter coat when I get when I was flying? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that's, how, that's how they treated me. But fortunately, uh, I had an address from my parents' neighbor back in, uh, you know, who li- his parents lived in, in Vietnam, and he came, he was living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. So I wrote to him, and he and I were not related. Oh, wow. But he did the, the sponsorship. And boom, I got accepted, and I came to. That's how I ended up in Cleveland. And he's still around. He lives some, you know, not far from me. Oh we, wow, we are still in touch. That's why. That's amazing. I mean, that that you know, you, through all of those different circumstances, that you're able to, you know, reconnect and continue yeah. to have relationships. I mean, because in that time period, I mean, now now it's easy communication. We have all these tools, but mm-hmm. back then, I'm sure communication was completely different. You know, I mean, it was letters. letters, That's right. (laughs) Which, I mean, in a way, the value of letters is almost overlooked. I mean, I see that even in the work you're doing Mm -hmm. with the prisons, right? I mean, we haven't even talked about that yet. But I mean, I I think that was one of the things that attracted me most. I saw this uh, value in it. You know, there's something tactile and tangible and very, very human 
uh, in a letter that isn't the same as uh, what we get through digital communication? It carries a lot of, I guess, sentimental value, and one can emotionally, you know, uh, feel the the writing, or uh, the meaning behind the writing, and that's right. Like, you know, uh, I decided this past Christmas to send greeting cards to all my friends. <laughs> yeah, which I kind of like ignore, neglect. Mm. I understand. I mean, it. it it's the same with me. I mean, especially during this uh, time where we were all so separated from each other, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I've leaned heavily on the digital communication tools, but, uh, lately, and, and this is an encouragement, I think partly inspired by seeing the way that you've been engaging with people. I, I see that I, I need to have a, a healthy dose of both things. You know, I need to make time to send people things in the mail. So they, even if it's a small package, there's something about getting that, you know, and even I, I've had this thought and I know I'm going to derail our conversation, but I had even had this thought about our addiction to shopping on stores like Amazon and things like that. I almost wonder if we haven't become addicted to that because of the desire to get something in the mail, it's not that we really want the thing. It's the excitement of you. You're getting something and you're opening it. And it's like, you could, we could be doing that for each other, mm-hmm. you know, but instead we're relying on a, on this entity and we're spending our money to do this. And I know it's just a, a side thought that I was pondering the other day. <laughs> anyway, so, so yeah, so back to your story. You you're in Malaysia. You're at our. It's how long were you there before? I, I mean, because I I had no relative, so I was and and because my sponsor had no relation with me, so I had to stay longer. Um, I spent ten months in Malaysia, and and then before coming to the U.S. the U.S. I had um, we were required to spend four months in Manila, the Philippines. Hmm. for what they call cultural uh, orientation training. Okay, yeah. I see. And, yeah, and then I landed in Cleveland on November 3rd, 1982. I see. Okay, Cleveland. And what was that like? I mean, you're, you're, were you prepared for that? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, in Saigon, in Vietnam, like all year round, we would wear short. We didn't even wear T-shirt, you know, like T-shirt. <laughs> right. <or> <laughs> Short all day long, you know, even now. I mean, except like during winter in December, like we would put on a shirt. But, um, and here's the thing with $10, right? I only had one uh, a bag with that's my, my carry on. That was it. I had a pair of jeans that I bought in the Philippines. And yeah. I, I, I also had a pair of polyester pants, you know, like the bell bottom type yeah. that I that I wore from Vietnam. And that, those were the only two things that I have. And I bought a, a, a winter jacket in in um, Philippines, but it was useless. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah that for, weather's completely, weather. right. Yeah, you're talking about real winter <laughs> right. conditions. <laughs> Correct. And the same thing with my brother, you know, and, and, uh, the first two weeks we stay at my sponsor's house, you know, so that was good. And then, uh, we decided to, um, and then we, uh, he found a, a one bedroom, uh, which from an owner who turned his garage into a one bedroom 
house. I see. Okay. Yeah, and, and the rent was one hundred thirty dollars. You know, and and they were helping us because he was working for a Jewish uh, foundation. Okay. So they were helping to provide the funding, help pay for it. And then that's how I started to go because I couldn't speak anything other than knowing from A to Z. That was it. Uh huh. I was basically I don't know. Yeah, you're completely. <laughs> I mean, what you're hearing is probably meaningless, and no. you're just depending on other signals, right? I mean, right. that's interesting. I mean, when I, yeah, I imagine that would be the way it would have to be. You'd have to lean more on intuiting people's body language or (laughs) yeah i mean during that time when you're slowly acclimating to that language and i mean how long did it take before that started to happen when you started to uh, pick up english and started using words and i mean was that i think it took a couple years and and, you know we were I, i registered in high school I spent, you know, uh, even though I was 19 at the time, I was allowed to be in high school. Okay. And and they put me in 11th grade because I got my transcript from Vietnam. And so because I came in November and I got in, so I spent the second half of that school year and I spent another half, another whole year and I graduated from high school in 1984. Okay. And by the second year, I was able to speak, you know, they put us in the ESL, English as a second language. Okay. And that, that was the only thing that I struggled, but I had no problem with chemistry, with physics, with social science. Everything else was a piece of cake. <laughs> now, during this time period, are you uh-huh. still in communication with your parents in any way? Letters. Letters, it, okay. It would take a month, because at the time, the U.S., you know, imposed embargo against Viet- the, the, the Vietnamese government, so there was no direct phone call contact. So a letter would take a month to get to Vietnam, and then it would take another month for the letter to get to Cleveland. Okay. That's how I guess, I, you know, these things like this are so fascinating to me, because, I mean, there's so many little nuanced things. Uh, one I was curious about was, you know, once... A citizen is disappears from a country like, you know, you and your brother, you know, your citizens of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's how that would work. They have yeah. some kind of, uh, you know, in America, we have Social Security numbers and things like that. I mean, so if you all of a sudden have two citizens or, or groups of citizens that are gone, what happens to the parents, you know, because, I mean, does the government oh. get involved? Oh, here's the thing. Here's how they keep track, which will never happen in in America. Uh, I think the same thing in China and probably Russia as well, because this start with the communists, mm-hmm. so communism. Yeah. Um, in Vietnam, in each household, there is what we call a uh, a file, or uh, you know that that listed the head of the household. Okay. And everyone else with that. Gotcha. Okay. It's a bit similar to the census, but you know that's that's only counting the number. But here, and and so they have a. a, a a paper, a document that shows that, and mm-hmm. you have to have that. And with the communist, in each neighborhood, let's say on a street of twenty households, yeah, they would assign a, a, a an officer to watch per street. Neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like what we call the KGB or whatever. Yeah. But that's it is. This is the security forces. And so they're coming by checking randomly from time to time. Where's want to see everybody? Let me see your paper. 
they come to see you every day, a few times a day. They oh. know when you go to eat. They will know when to go to the bathroom. So wow. when I, my brother and I disappear, the guy came and made threat. And, and you know, like we have to have a neighborhood meeting. And he threatened to make my mom to confess that she did wrong. <laughs> mm. So my mom was, my parents were freaking out. We had to bribe him to get away with that. And really? Oh, yeah, it's so corrupt, even now. Yeah, I mean, it that seems like it. it's ripe for that, right? I mean, for corruption. Man, that is just something else. So even today, <laughs> I mean, so your parents, are they still in Vietnam? Well, oh, no, pa- uh, I brought them over in 1981. Okay. Uh, in 1991. Okay. And, and, and my dad passed away in 99, and my mom passed away almost two years ago. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I see. So yeah, yeah. they did eventually come to the United States. Correct, correct. Yeah. What a journey. <laughs> now, here's the thing that I think a lot of people, as they're listening to your story through this apparatus here, you know, they might be imagining a Buddhist monk going through all of these things, right? But I had this, as I was listening or reading the pieces, and now that I'm listening to you, I, I don't imagine that at all anymore. I see a young man in jeans and a t-shirt so I'm, I'm very curious, at what point did Buddhism enter your life as a, a path that sort of begins to inform you, right, um, mm-hmm. and through all the things you've been through? Okay. Well, let, let me throw something quick. So I finished high school, and then I, had, I, I went to college, and ah, I, okay. I, I got a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineer in 1989 from ah. Case Reserve University. I had a job, and I went to school at night and get my Master of Science in Electrical Engineer from Cleveland State University in 1994, and I also got my MBA from Cleveland State in 2001. Wow. So all through that, because um, I I was not the type that would be satisfied with my condition with what I got. Gotcha. Okay. It was always that want more. So Eager, that's yeah. education, and I was very fortunate. Um, and and um, by in not, I worked as an an associate electrical engineer from that to project engineer to project manager, and then in 1998 I switched over to software. <laughs> that's, <laughs> okay. pro- that's where the problem came. <laughs> And, you know, I was in software support where you have to answer calls, you know, all day. And, and actually, we only had to answer the phone five, five hours per day, but we get paid for eight hours. And, and the stress came from because the customers would call in and most, a lot of them, they did not know how to use the software. You know, and they did not even know what to do with the CD. And, you know, and I, I'm not trying to demean them, but that's sure. the the situation that I face on a daily basis. Right. You know, I understand. Like, is new technology for them, you know, that you've got a whole culture trying to immerse themselves <laughs> in something yeah. new that they don't really speak the language and don't understand it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're facing and, and that. And not only that, you know, like, we get yelled at all the time by the customer. I'm like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what happened was the stress got so overwhelmed. I would get home. I would be angry. I would be like, mm. pissed, look mad all day yeah, long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the morning, I'm fine, right? Uh, you know, I shower, go, I would drive to work, and boom. <laughs> Once I get a phone call, 
It was gone. My 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 uh, former supervisor called me like a walking time bomb. <laughs> the stress was just too much. It's like it was just right. eating up your eating. I get that. I mean, look. I mean, we that is a that's almost like a plague in the modern world, right? I mean, it really is. Long-time Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. On The Dawn Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings? enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts. Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Dawn Deacon podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. I hope you'll join me at the Dawn Deacon podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. I, I still have uh, college uh, friends who are in software, and the stress is very, very overwhelming. They had to see what we call a life coach. Mm, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so that's aside. And and so in two thousand three, two thousand two, I start to you know I didn't know what to do. I said I had to do something, right? Yeah. Because you cannot be drinking or smoke, uh, that's not me. And and so um, I started to explore about Buddhism. And okay. well, here's the one thing about most of us who were born in Vietnam, raised in Vietnam, or even in a lot of the Asian country, like you are born a Buddhist, you know, by it's culture. Part of your by culture, country. yeah. Right. It's just like, you know, someone who is born in America, most likely he or she would be a Christian. Right. You know, it, it, it's okay. So, um, and, but here's, a, here's my problem, too. <laughs> uh, there were, in Cleveland, there was a temple uh, that was built in 1984. So I start going every Sunday. And my, and, you know, I always, the only thing that I always hoped for or wished for was to be united with my family. Mm-hmm. So by November 1991, they came. And then I was like, okay. And, and in my mind, I thought that, you know, for Buddhism, what you do is you always ask for something. <laughs> but now I was like, I, I don't need anything. I'm not asking for anything. So I quit the temple. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it was the wrong view, according to the Buddha. I understand. Yeah, no, but, you know, people come to religion and we mm-hmm. bring our own stuff. You know, we show up in our religion we're like, hey, this is my wish. This is what I um, hope to gain, you know. And we want to fr- reframe that religion like through our experience. And then we get in there and we're like, no, no, no. <laughs> There's some Correct. some of that stuff needs to stay out at the door because, you know, it, you, you kind of get reshaped as you walk through the door. But I, we all want to bring our luggage in and we don't fit. <laughs> Correct. So, so you know, at the time I said I was satisfied. You know, I was grateful that my family came. So, I kind of like drifting off. I didn't bother to go to the temple anymore. I, only, I would only go once a year for New Year. Okay. And so it wasn't until two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two, when my job was so stre- stressful. So I start reading. <laughs> mm, okay. So, so I get books by the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. 
by Tin Yahan about you know like what happiness is that kind of thing. Yeah, and um, that's how that's what got me back to Buddhism. And what happened was um, in two thousand late two thousand three, my mom wanted to go back to Vietnam, so I took her back. And here's the thing. I think it was her fault that I became a Buddhist monk because she went to a fortune teller. Okay. Okay. Asked about me, and you know, in America, I don't think we have that. And she said, you know, this guy, he is very spiritual, but he didn't go to the temple, uh-huh. which was right. <laughs> and that, you know, but then the one thing that 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 she got wrong was that I would be married. And oh my, you know, oh my gosh. When my mom heard that, she was so excited. She said, really? <laughs> Grandkids. She said, oh, guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and see, my mom tipped it. I think, you know, the tip got lost somehow. Uh, but so when I came back, when I heard that, I felt guilty. Mm, I you know, see. Because I, I felt guilty because, you know, yeah, most a lot of my life, you know, I always went to the temple and asked for something. And now I, I quit. So I went back to the same temple. And what happened was there was a, a lot of going, you know, they drew, they drew the Buddhist nun out of the temple. So people were protesting. And then they end up buying a, a building and turned that into a temple. And that's how I helped out. I see. And so, but, and, and this was in 2004 now. Okay. And, you know, at the time when I met her, she was like, Oh, why don't you become a monk? I'm like, heck no. You know, <laughs> I was living on the 27th floor of a condo on Lake Erie, overlooking downtown. I was on water, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I was like, and I was driving a, uh, an Acura, you know, stick So you're going, life's pretty good right now. Right. Oh, yeah. I was making $70,000 a year. And, uh, and I say most of it. And I also, you know, hang, uh, I would hang out with my, a couple of my best friends on weekends to, you know, we would have wine, that kind of thing. And life was good, except the stress. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're, you know, in comparison to where you've come from, everything you've been mm-hmm. through. I mean, I'm curious, but I mean, I bet you there was probably even a thing going, hey, I kind of deserve this. Yeah. Right? I mean, I mean like me. a feeling of like, look, I've already paid my just desserts to, you know, I've been through uh, it. Yeah. Correct. I mean, you know, I did everything myself, and and um, I got a ten thousand dollars student loan in when I was in college, and I pay off in in within two years. I save my money and I pay off. So you know, but then her question, her, her, her question always <laughs> got stuck in my consciousness. Like it always popped up. Like, hey, <laughs> why don't you become a monk? Wow. So, and, and yeah, and so because I was so stressful, so I contemplated on that. And then, but the thing is, you know, being a monk in according to our religion, you don't get paid. Mm. There's no money. You know, you live on donation. Right. And, and you know, like we don't ask for you. You cannot ask for money, or you cannot ask to get paid. I see. Okay. And, and that's how it is. You know, throughout uh, the history of Buddhism, for for monks and nuns. Like, we don't set a price. I mean, uh, just off a little bit, a friend of mine, he said, you know, his fiance would like to invite me to offer, you know, to teach meditation and ask me how much it is. I said, no, I don't set a price because that's not how we do. Right. I see. So you can take a donation, but you can't say, hey, it's this much or anything like that. It's just like up to whoever. (laughs) I see. Okay. Yeah, it defeats the purpose, you know, because then when you tell, when you think about money as a price, to be honest, it's the intention and it's greed. 
Yeah, and it can corrupt. I mean, it really can. Right. I mean, it can take make your intentions completely shift. Correct. You know, so, so, and I thought about it. So at the time I was like, okay, I could deal with, uh, in June I could, uh, of 2004, I said, you know, I could deal with, uh, without money, but I couldn't deal with, without health insurance. Right. Right. And, right. You know, like, that was the one thing that, I mean, when I got my MBA, I thought about quitting my job and moving to, from Cleveland to LA, but then I couldn't find work and I was afraid to lose my health insurance. So, so I, I, I stay with the job. I, I st- you know, I thought about the decision, and then at the time, I think there were almost um, thirty million Americans without health insurance. Yeah. And then I said, you know what? Screw it. What's with one more? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in in September of 2004, that's when I decided to become a monk. And and but the thing is, because I I own a condo with mortgage right. and you cannot become a monk owing money you have oh, to be free debt free okay right so so uh it took me uh, i owe like fifty thousand dollars on on the condo and you know who is going to pay because i cannot ask anyone not my siblings you know it's not fair sure so, you don't want to pass so, that along to them correct so uh i it, i waited almost a year and a half and the condo sold at the loss <laughs> which was fine uh, and then uh, I flew to um, my teacher in Philadelphia. He shaved my head, and I spent like three days there. That was in the end of April. And then I flew back to Cleveland to see my mo- to LA to see my mom for ten days. And then I, f- I bought a one way ticket to Vietnam and then stayed there. Oh, I didn't think about coming back. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I flew to Vietnam just you know for training because it's it's better in because in in America most of the temples they only have one or two or three monks you know and they are constantly busy they they didn't they wouldn't have time to train me I see so I guess the best decision was to go to Vietnam and just focus on my training which wow. I did okay yeah. And and uh, I was so lost when I got there. I even cried that the first few nights. And uh, but then I got used to it. However, uh, I came back 18 months later uh, because of the weather, mm. of the pollution, and the diet. I was sick the whole time after one month uh, being in Vietnam. Really? So was it that degrading? I mean, though, as far as the environment and the food. That and also, I guess my health, you know, just couldn't. I, and I lost like 10 pounds. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I was like, I think I waited at 146 or 147. When I came back in December of 2007, I was down to 135. Oh, wow. So you really were losing weight. Yeah. Correct. And, and like, I was constantly taking medication, which was not a good thing. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, and that's how I came back. Well, luckily, I found the University of the West, uh, and they have a Buddhist studies program, and that's how I enrolled, and I got my uh, MA and PhD in Buddhist studies. Ah, okay. Yep. That is fascinating. That's that's (laughs) incredible, because... You know, there's just this sort of, I guess, the mythology of the whole thing, right? I mean, we you can easily paint a completely different picture than what you just shared. You know, mm-hmm. I love, I, I I find it actually refreshing, to be honest, because what you described was almost, um, 
and I don't mean this in a negative way and, and for people to take it the way it's probably going to sound, but like the disease of America to some degree of the mm-hmm. culture. I mean, there's a lot of great things about it, obviously, compared to Correct. some other things. But mm-hmm. what you were describing, that that work-life stress, you know, that cracking point, and then even the way you came to Buddhism, I mean, even though that was the religion of your country, mm-hmm. um, the way you came to it wasn't necessarily through that door. You came through it through the door of your own uh, fed-upness to some degree, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's a very American thing. I mean, a lot of people I know, I mean, myself included— come to buddhism through the same door it's like okay there's a breaking point uh something's not working i'm uh in despair and depression and frustration and anger and fear and you're living in that and you just go there's got to be a better way something has to inform these things something has to be out there that can help me with this and you know we look at buddhism same thing you said we look at books, we find teachers, and, you know, it's it's a similar path, and that surprises me, actually. I didn't expect that, to be honest with you. You know, like, well, I came to America with $10, right? I got everything, <laughs> right? And then, you know, I had three college degrees, and boom, I drop it all. And then that's why my one, a couple of my friends like, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> and then my even my sister, like, you know... Why? You know, even my mom was crying at the time because, you know, well, she, she, she was crying not because of the degree or the money, but she was crying because she was afraid that life would be tough as a monk. Ah, I see. You she know, wants so, you to have a good life, and she correct. worried that that wouldn't be the, yeah, I see. That's a mother. Me- <laughs> <laughs> that's all mamas, or at least good mamas, that's what they think. Correct. <laughs> you know, so I have right. everything, and then I drop everything. Ah, wow. You know? And, and and the thing that if you ask me uh, if you know like and there most of the people in America or even throughout the world with career they're so stressful mm. even you know a couple of the guys who came a few of the guys who came out prison and they went, they met their friends and they said that you know <laughs> that's not the lifestyle that they want because you know married kids and job it was so stressful that they end up drinking and smoking mm, yeah <laughs> yeah so so. So now I'd love it if we could kind of talk about how your path to forming the Engage Buddhist Alliance and the work you do with that, because you're one of the founders, correct? Or are you the sole founder of the Engage? Well, I was one of the the, the co-founders. Oh, here's what happened in 2013 when I was finishing up my writing my dissertation. Mm hmm. And I, I try to figure out what I should do with my life, right? I could stay in the monastery, but to me, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just didn't feel compelled to it. So uh, I, was, I wasn't sure what to do. And when I heard that there was a meeting uh, being held by Dr. Lancaster and about teaching Buddhism inside the prison. So I went, and there were couple, like 20, more than 20 people. Mm. And we had two meetings, and then he said, at the end of the second meeting, he passed out a paper and said, hey, whoever that, you know, were interested, you guys can sign up. And so I put my name on it, and I didn't even think about it. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm going to do this. (laughs) You know, like, no. And then, you know, I think a couple weeks later, that was in spring of 2014. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. And, um, no, before, I think that was in, yeah, 2013. 
uh, spring. And and Margaret called me and she said, hey, Renabu D, you signed up for this. You want to go with us? And I was like, really? And as it turned out, only three people. <laughs> so you're going, hey, at first, it's probably more comfort in a large group. You know, you're going, oh, there's some. I mean, I know I, I have a little bit of the social shyness at first. And it's like, why? Well, when there's other people involved, it's like, well, I can kind of hide in the corners a little bit and see and how this goes first. But when you're. <laughs> You sign up for something and you're the one of three. One of three. And to, to be honest, I, was, I wasn't concerned. I was a bit hesitated, you know. So I said, my God, I said okay, sure. <laughs> so, so the three of us end up, you know, meeting and, and figure out what to do. And um, that's how we formed the Engaged Buddhist Alliance. And we started going into a couple of prisons. One is high maximum security. I went to the level two, uh, which is Chakawala in Blythe of California. Okay. And I started in September of 2013, so it has been almost eight years. So the only time I've ever heard the term engaged Buddhism was from reading Thich Nhat Hanh's works. And when I came across your work and saw that name, I, I was really excited, to be honest, because I loved that. That was one of the things I actually loved about Buddhism. And maybe it was that fusion of those two words together. But the idea of looking at the ills of the world, wherever they may be, in whatever size or scale, and, and actually going and getting in that to help is that Correct. what y'all's goal really was and then you're like hey we're gonna make this active we're gonna put ourselves in the midst Correct. I mean, if you look at Tin Yohan in, in back in the six, uh, 60s, when you know, during the, 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 the Vietnam War was very intense and the bombing. And so what he did was instead of just sitting in the monastery, and that's what he said, you know, he decided to, to go go outside the village to rescue these people, to help these people who were poor, who were hurt, you know, who were injured. And that's how he coined the term engage Buddhism mm. is to, you know, and, and so, I mean, it, for me, in a way, you know, Buddhism, Buddhism is not like for the elite. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not about <laughs> sitting inside the monastery. I mean, granted, that's necessary, but um, I think we need to apply and and bring that the compassion and offer that to the folks who need it. Mm -hmm. And even at the time, uh, I mean, we're trying to come up with different names, but the the engaged Buddhist alliance were really kicked in. You know, it yeah. got the vote. Um, so so we got it. And when I went, I had no clue to be honest with you um, at the time what prison was like. And was like. You know, I was like, just like, let me try, just hang out. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't. Know, yeah, you're going into a brand new experience. Correct. And the one that got me my first visit was looking at the razor wire that is uh, connected with the high voltage that sent chill into my spine. But mm. just looking at it, you know, you're like, oh, how could anyone, you know, touch it? But yeah. that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, by going in, and um, I, um, that's how I was able to be directly face to face with dukkha or suffering, so, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, in, that's what the Buddha talked about suffering, and that's how it kind of like changed me completely, and that's how it motivated me to continue, and you know, going from one prison to seven. Yeah. <laughs> which I. 
I spread quite thin, you know, thin, you know, thinking about it now. This is this fast. This is the part that fascinates me the most. And, you know, all the language that can be used to describe it sometimes is, is falls short. But what you just said there, dukkha, suffering, and its ability to awaken the human heart. You know, I mean, we think of suffering and, and generally we think, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be in pain. But it's when you look out almost on another person who's suffering and then something transformative happens. And it sounds like that's I mean, you you had been through the training and you had, uh, you know, been through the college courses, but you step in the prison and you see Duca firsthand, even though you'd been through your own sufferings. Now you go in and some, it sounds like something happened. This is worse than it was worse than my suffering, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it is kind. It is hard. I mean, at first, you know, we were thinking of just you know we were going inside to teach Buddhism, mm. and it would be so easy that we thought. But however, uh, there, there were a lot of challenges. First of all, um, the level of education for the folks inside the prison is usually they only have a GED. Okay, but the majority um, reading and writing level uh, would be at sixth grade. Really, that's one thing. Second, to get books into the prisons, you know, you, you because when you study Buddhism, you just can't you cannot just have one book. You need like twenty, thirty, forty, <laughs> right. and it's impossible to get that in. Ah, you know, and, and they, each prison has a central library and. Almost, they have zero. <laughs> oh, really? I, I was oh, going to yeah. ask you that. What? What? Zero. what really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what, almost not. But do they have books of, from other religions there? They do. They do, but not. But not Buddhism. Buddhism. I mean, yeah. If you go to the, you know, inside we when we would go, we got into the chapel and you go to the chapel, you got like five bookshelves of Bibles. <laughs> oh yeah, right. You don't have a you don't have a Buddhist book. <laughs> wow, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, and so because of those conditions and not to mention funding. So uh, we we develop our own courses at a level where it can be helpful to the guys or the women mm-hmm. to study and, and do it and at a much cheaper cost. I see. OK. You know, yeah. So that's what happened. That's how we uh, end up doing, you know. So, and also there was a need to meditate, to 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 learn how to meditate. Mm-hmm. And even for me, you know, I'm just a novice meditator, to be honest with you. And it was like, and I was okay. Yeah, <laughs> so you have to look. I have to figure out how to do the guided meditation. Mm-hmm. What's and then also what's going to work in that environment, right? Correct. Correct. Um, so we offer um, mindfulness meditation because it can be practiced anywhere, anytime. You know, um, if you offer other Buddhist rituals, it's like you need this and that. But with mindfulness meditation, hey, are you mindful? <laughs> right. You know, you can use that anywhere. What you like, and you can use any kind of apparatus or trigger to help you. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. What, what's your emotions? You know, how do you feel? That kind of thing. So, so that's the one thing that was uh, that we had to include as part of our visit. I see. Uh, yeah. So, 
I see that y'all ship books and letters and other things like that. That was something I was very curious. That was actually one of the things that attracted me immediately was that. Because, you know, books uh, for me have been the door to great insights and learning. As you said, you don't need one book. You need 20 books. And, you know, that's been my door. I mean, for the most part. And when I saw that you were sending some of the same books that I saw on my bookshelf over the years, you know, to prisoners, I'm assuming, I thought, you know, that, I don't know, my heart kind of opened up to that because I thought that one book could be a treasure to somebody. Mm -hmm. It could be giving them insights into themselves and their own suffering, their lives that maybe they haven't had before. Okay. Yeah. Here, here are two. Here are two things two, or two prongs that what we do. One part of it is you know the the correspondence studies, right? And and we, I even get a new request yesterday for to to do a mindfulness course. And the other thing is for a lot of the people inside the prison, they have to prepare for parole. Mm-hmm. Right. And most of them are lifers. And and to, in order to prepare for parole, they need to have insights. And how do you have insights into your past, into your deeds? Ah, I, I don't, you know. And and so the books that so California had published a list of books that can be used, can be read by the prisoners. Oh, okay. I have, yeah. So that's why you see the list. So so, um, I mean, I don't necessarily have to do it, but there, we had a lot of requests. And and so we, I decided, or we decided, to purchase these books or ask for donation of these books. Yeah, to to send them to into the prison because a, anyone can use it. And fortunately, Tin uh, Han has like ten books on the list. Oh, great! Yeah, so that's yeah. why you see I'm seeing some of those same books. I wondered about that. You know, one of the books that I saw that y'all send was uh, Father Doyle's book. You know, Tattoos on the Heart. Yeah, and yes. I have that book. It's a wonderful book, and I thought, wow, that's an interesting one. I didn't expect it actually. Uh, that book is for uh, formerly for for former gang members. Yeah. You know? So that's why I mean it 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 was added this year that I noticed, and so that's how I decided to offer them. Um, you know, so for me, I, another thing that I want to emphasize for us to do, and so it's for me in particular, is. When we go inside, when I go inside, my my goal, my my point is to share with what I learned that can help them to re- minimize or release their dukkha, right? Mm. But is but it's not my job, or it's not my goal to convert people. That's the one thing I want. Sure. Even though I'm a monk, and and I would never, I never ask anyone to convert inside the prison. Yeah, you're just trying to help them relieve their. You're you're quelling their disease, so to speak. Correct. I mean, that's I, I get that. That makes sense. I think that's what I loved. I love about what y'all are doing so much. And you even said something like that, or I read it somewhere that you had said that um, one of your goals is you never worry about their story. You don't go in and go, okay, what did you do? How bad was your atrocity that you committed? Um, you're there to just be with them and offer that, exactly what you said, an alleviation to whatever may be su- the suffering. And hopefully transform them, I'm assuming, so if they do re-enter the world, that they can perhaps become a vehicle for the same thing. Correct. I mean, here's the thing. And even, you know, when we, we have each, uh, we as volunteers, we, we are required to do the annual training with, with California's prisons. And we were told to never ask them anything personal. So it's like, what did you do? Mm. 
usually it would they they have to initiate the conversation uh, I see. or they have to volunteer their story but usually we never ask because it's not it's not conducive to what we do it's not helpful you know we we could guess whatever that they did but it's not our job to ask and we we i never ask they usually would come up and tell us now the other thing i think that is important for your listeners is that the people who uh, have come to my visits, most of them were traumatized at home or at mm. school or with gangs. And I want to bring this up just because I think America as a whole still don't have much sympathy, you know, let alone empathy for the incarcerated population. Yeah, I and can see that. It, yeah, and I'm mindful of the victims as well, and I'm not defending the incarcerated people but i want to the public to know that most of them the those who come to my visits were traumatized at home um even you know uh, the prison if you read any report from all the prisons in america 95 percent of this population will go home to your communities now what are you going to do right should we just throw them and lock them up forever or should we help them to rehabilitate just so that they can be productive citizens when they return home? So that's the one thing I want to emphasize. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I advocate that, too. I often say this to people that I want forgiveness and I want the ability to change. I mean, I, I may not vocalize that, but if I make a mistake, I don't want that to be held over me for the rest of my life, I want to be able to say, hey, this is an opportunity for me to adjust and learn um, and shift and bend, and hopefully that's what I will do. Um, mm -hmm. Far be it for me to not extend the same graces and mercies to my other brothers and sisters out in the world when I want the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, and that makes total sense. I mean, if we're just going to, you know, almost brand people for the rest of their lives, um, I don't know. It's just not. It's just going to make a more traumatized society. Correct. And it may, I may draw some stats, and like for women, like almost sixty percent of them who were who were incarcerated were sexually abused or molested. Mm. Um, and for men, uh, almost forty or fifty percent of them were physically or emotionally abused. About ten percent were sexually molested or, or abused. So we're not. It just sounds like what you're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, I would I would say this too is that we're just not properly dealing with eliminating the causes on the front end in this society. No, no, um, not at all. Well, here's the issue, right? Because I think in one of your questions, you asked about the the income of these yeah poverty mm -hmm. poverty, and guess what? The majority of them, let's see, if you. They came from 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 poor families, and in that population, quite a most of a lot of them came from immigrant immigrant parents. Yeah, so really. hmm. you have a problem within problems, and and that's what happened um, to these folks. Yeah. And even for me, I mean, fortunately, I came with my younger brother, but I luckily I was able to hold it together um, just so that we succeed. But for, for a lot of for a lot of folks, I mean, the, when you live in a poor neighborhood, when your parents are not home, what do you do? Or when they come home, 
they yell at you, they beat you up, they scream at you. So these are the things that they suffer. And, yeah. and when they need a way, and they have to suppress that, and that, to me that's one trauma, one type of trauma already. Right. So they need to, and so when they face with issues or whatever it is, they had to react, and they end up committing what they did and got sent to the prison. Yeah, I mean it's a chain reaction, right? And I mean it has it's like a, a hydra or something. It has many heads and many arms, and in uh, that stuff can be traced back. I often talk about this because I have trauma, you know, that I deal with. You know, you can look back at you. Let's say if you have a parent that traumatized you. Well, if you scratch the surface and if you have the ability, you can even look back beyond that parent and find out that maybe their parent was traumatizing them. And then even further back and you start seeing, oh, my goodness, this is just this chain reaction, this domino effect. And no one in the chain ever looked back on it and said, this kind of ends with me. I have to do the work and stop this chain reaction and not pass this on to my children. Correct. I mean, this is what we call what intergenerational, right? Yeah. And because it, it, it went now, and, and not only that, it, it trauma stays in your body. It does mm. not go away until, and and you can only get it to the point where it is manageable. You know, you cannot get rid of it because of the effects in the body. We hold it in the body. Um, there's a great book by I forgot the doctor. It's called uh, The Body Keeps a Score. He the doc, you know, he talked great so much about it but it, even myself the reason that i can empathize with this population is because growing up i was physically emotionally abused by my parents and so ah. my dad for from 77 to 81 he would come home drunk every night and couple times and, and not only that he he would come home drunk and i, I was only 14 i was the one that cleaned it up oh he wow puked, i had he could he could barely walk i had to help him to go upstairs if he was too drunk then we had a bed downstairs then i would put him there i had to change his take his you know outfit out and wow. just so he could go to sleep and that's what he, at 14 yeah and not only that we constantly I, I because i'm the oldest in the family and he would hold me responsible for everything and and he would take his rage out on me and he was an orphan when he was in China, because by the time he was six years old, both of his parents passed away. Wow. And yeah, he was raised by his grandma, and then his grandma was also gone. So he was raised by his uncles who abused him. And when he was 13, he came to Vietnam, and he was he got a job, but his uncles took his money. So he had all these issues, but he didn't realize that, and he just took it out on us. This fascinates me. Because what you're talking about there is not just intergenerational, but you're talking about migratory trauma. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about the the trauma of China. I mean, just generalizing mm-hmm. of what was going on at that time period, which traumatizes mm-hmm. a nation. Mm-hmm. It gets passed down through all these families, and then mm-hmm. that gets passed into your father. Then he... You know, himself as a comes to Vietnam as a, a refugee, uh, carries that trauma with him, and then it gets passed around. And I, I just think that's fascinating. I don't mean that as fascinated as an entertainment sense. I mean, it fascinates me because I'm looking at you and just sitting here talking to you, and I think I'm sitting here talking with, you know, 
one of the offshoots of that that has now migrated to this country and look what you're look what has happened this is the beginning of the end of that trauma cycle and i, I think that's a beautiful thing yeah, I mean, you know, the abuse ended, you know, with me. Even a couple of my siblings, they were quite abusive, and I, I, I spoke up against that because you can't do that to the kids. And, and if you look at the countries where, you know, they had war and everything, even South America, you know, Latin America or Southeast Asia, that's what happened. Even, guess what, the former Soviet Union, right? Yeah. And the reason that I bring that up is because I thought that, you know, we— were bombed and everything because when I went to the prison, I see I saw a lot of Southeast Asians because most of them are Buddhist, uh-huh. you know, and and they came to me and I thought it was just us, but then I went to a couple of people who came from the former Soviet Union. Interesting. And and because at the time, you know, at, before I guess at the after the collapse, and these people were traumatized before, and they came to America when they were ten or twelve, and with their parents, and they end up joining the gang or they did something. Yeah, and, and there again, it's migratory trauma. That is correct. very interesting. I mean, I never, I, I thought about this when I first started reading the works of the Dalai Lama, and now you know other Tibetan teachers. And I often say this, you know, because I became kind of fascinated with the story of, of Tibet particularly. And, you know, like the invasion of China and all the, the scattering about of uh, their nation. And I, mm-hmm. But I think about that to this day when I, when I read a teaching that affects my life and helps me to adjust. I think, I, would I have had access to this teaching mm-hmm. without that trauma? You know, mm-hmm. on that nation, which was horrible, but at the same time, transmutive in a sense, because now it has the ability to crawl across the world. These these teachings mm-hmm. uh, and help people just like you in this prison systems, you and your team and however many people are with you, you're touching these lives. And even if just one is transformed and can leave that system, I don't know. I just. That's like my great hope is that we will eventually over time see more of that, you know, that's individual action on these really small scales mm-hmm. instead of these big traumas, these big national traumas that create like a, a pouring out of migrational trauma, I guess, is what my great hope is. Correct. You know, I mean, if you look at our pandemic right now, there's we suffer trauma because of, of the issue that it has caused on our mental health, mm. you know. And then going back to the population, even a lot of folks from South America, like El Salvador um, and some other countries, they suffer gang, you know, attack or, or bombing. They came to this country and they still have that trauma inside their body and they still couldn't figure out. And that's why for me, I need to, I, I have trying to learn more about how to offer mindfulness in such a way that they can be able to deal with the traumas and manage it to the point. And it, it works too for a lot of folks, not for not necessarily for everybody, but it does for a lot of people. So you've actually seen it. I mean, you've seen, have you seen over time, like particular individuals where you can actually see the effect, you know, the change? Yes, I can give you some example. Um, I had a woman, um, let's call her um, Renee. Okay. <laughs> can use her, her real name. Um, she, she, well, you know, she grew up in, of course, she was born and raised in the, U, in the U.S., and she witnessed her 
her mom being beat up by her father, and then when she got married, she got beat up by her husband, and then she got five daughters. What happened was, uh, during at a party, her daughter's boyfriend attacked her daughter. So, out of a mother's instinct, right, you have to protect your child regardless. And I'm not, you know, and she attacked him. I'm not sure what happened, but she ended up um, spending a li- receiving a life sentence. Yeah. And I think she's been almost 18 or 19, and she's now out. But here's what happened in 2016 when I started to visit um, this prison. It's a women's prison, mm-hmm. uh, one of three uh, in Chino. Um, she saw me, and she wasn't sure. And then her friend said, oh, you got to go to see him. <laughs> You know, because once I walked inside the prison, it's obvious because I'm the only one that dressed like this. And she yeah. noticed. And then she joined our group. And within, after four months, she went back and saw her psychiatrist. She was taking off medication. And this is the medication that she had been taking taken since day one for 16 years. Wow. And she was off medication. And once you are not taking medication, you are not labeled as having mental illness. Interesting. Yeah. So So she was... No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, you know, with mindfulness meditation, I I, I show them how to, okay, label your your feeling, right? You know, sad or angry. And she did that. And that's that's how it helped her. So she does not get trapped in those negative feelings and she's de- able to detach from it and that helped her and within four months and i didn't even know until a few months later she said oh yeah i'm not on medication and that's what got me interested to ask her more questions and that's what she told me so i wonder and that is interesting i mean i've i've i know for me when i had my kind of breaking point decades ago where things begin to change Part of that was having was investigating my mind, right? Like investigating my mind, my experiences, my triggers. You know, those you said that early in our conversation about how the fireworks bother you and the helicopter sounds, you know. And, and I started to go, okay, what are these little triggers inside of me that are old and buried, little things from my childhood, the negative ones, but then also investigating maybe the positive ones too, so I could begin to identify my reactiveness you mm-hmm. know and it was like i found i was um almost a slave to my experiences to some degree my mind and these older experiences that i really couldn't that should have had distance were still affecting me they were just still leading me around by the nose and i wonder when you go in to talk to people at what at, if you if that's part of that if they if they you start to see that where they're like they've maybe never investigated uh their selves mm-hmm. Correct. No, they don't. You know why? Because when we, once you get into a you know, into a prison, and this is typical, you know, not just California. It at level level three and level four, level three and level four are maximum. Are high risk, are violent, and you know, all you need. The only thing that you could do is trying to survive. So mm. you don't have time to yeah. like yeah, contemplate. Yeah. You it's know. survival. I get that. I see what you're saying. Like right. you're taking people that are um, in an already bad situation, maybe have done something and hurt somebody, which obviously came from pain outside of that system, and mm-hmm. then you're shoving them into a system that's really just even more violent. 
more violent and that's more traumas on top of what they yeah. experienced before incarceration that's yeah. the point so so the thing is you know once they join us they, we were inside the chapel we we were in a safe space and that's how I you know see. i was able to direct them and that's how they were able to learn it and when they uh went back to their cell you know either in the morning or throughout the day or at night they are able to reflect and contemplate on that and that helps them yeah uh, yeah otherwise you know they're busy all day long because you know a lot of them here's the thing about prison is they, they don't have time other than probably some week on the weekends monday through friday they're busy we cannot visit them during weekdays except the evening or after two o'clock because they have activities all day in the morning until two i they see have classes they have to work uh, or they have to take what we call vocation meaning training in in jobs mm -hmm. so if you don't you'll be in trouble you know so they don't have time i mean here out here people have the impression oh they get all the free time no they don't so you don't they don't have time to think about their past they don't have to uh, or, you know let alone traumas and, right. and it's only through visiting with us that uh they're able to learn more the, the technique or the tools the mental tools to help them to learn about the past and figure out what the triggers were and what the causes were. They need to know the difference because when you go into the hearing, they ask you like, why did you do it? What happened to you, right? You cannot say, oh, I was angry. No, you need to be able to explain to the commissioners your how, how you were raised, how you were abused, that kind of thing. And with the practice of mindfulness meditation and the teach the Buddha's teaching, uh, it helped them to figure that out for most of them. Is there a particular, and I know I think I even sent that over in some of the lists of questions mm -hmm. ahead of time, but is there a particular teaching that you have found that almost seems universal and resonates in that environment? Something that is almost like an aha with almost the majority of the people that you engage with? There's quite a few. The one, the first one is the uh, the you know in the four noble truths. The first one is the first noble truth, right? The suffering of aging, of sickness, of death. Yeah. They experience all of that. And the thing is, you know, even if if they experience death or family, they suffer along in silence because they couldn't go home. Mm. And especially with with the COVID, yeah, that's the first thing is dukkha. <laughs> yeah, suffering. Mm. Yeah, suffering. I mean, that's the one thing. Second is the. Um, the, the teaching of the impermanence. Yes, okay. Uh, you know, like, hey, things are constantly changing. Uh, and also um, the teaching of not-self, uh, right? Yes. Um, I had another story that I just got yesterday is that this guy, he he was upset a few weeks ago when the CEO drew, put the books on the floor, the, the package, mm -hmm. and kicked it into his cell. And he was upset. He said, hey, so some respect, he was screaming out. But then when he saw the photo was from me, ah. it kind of like turned me down. And then he, he said, oh, I have to apologize. Ah. So yesterday, he, uh, I got a letter from him. And he said the next day, he went to that, that CEO in front of other CEO and other guys, incarcerated guys. And he apologized. And here's what he said. You know, he said in the past, um, let me let me read it. Um, oh, apologize, apologizing to another human is not a demeaning courtesy. 
I used to believe this. And I thank our loving Buddha's teaching for giving me the strength to follow through with this practice of loosening the ego wow. or the self. Wow. That, and he said he yeah. took the time to do it and he wrote you and let you know that. Yeah. I just, and <sighs> this is his quote. You know, and that's that's the, beautiful. Correct. And, and, you know, because of this so much animosity between the CEOs and the incarcerated population, it's hard to. For them, for both sides. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing that, and, and I'm reading yeah, that, I'm, and I'm taking that to heart and learning something right now from that. I mean, we don't even always do that out here, and we have ample opportunity to do it. But we hold, <laughs> withhold our forgiveness. We withhold our apologies, um, yeah. our graces, we all those things. Reason. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Reason, you know. Because it keeps us yeah. angry. It keeps us mad. It keeps us believing we are first of all that there is a we or a me and that i'm right (laughs) correct our it it builds up and and, you know that only makes us miserable because we hold on to resentment and hatred against somebody and i told you i was abused i i I held so much hatred against my dad that it was eating me inside out and it was that's another reason that i was never happy yeah you know you you told that story about your dad and and then also, I believe I listened to you on another podcast, you were talking about your mother. And I just wanted to take a minute and tell you that, you know, I resonated with that. I lost my father about five years ago, and I had a um, a mixed relationship with him, too, where there was just some joys and pains, you know. And my mother also had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was just some similarities there and I started to relate to you very personally because I was like, man, I can relate to everything he's talking about, you know, losing my father and you, I believe you mentioned this as well was difficult, Mm -hmm. not just in the losing sense, but it was in the unresolved issues that we never got to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, that's a type of trauma that does get carried around, you know, and, um, in in a way, it affected me in, in the way, and I, or I choose to let it affect me in the sense that when I have an opportunity to connect with my children, I mm-hmm. do it. You know, when I have an opportunity to not uh, be hot-headed or traumatic for, and hurt, uh, say hurtful things, or especially <laughs> things that will stick in their minds, I try to do the opposite. I mean, I try to in, intentionally, and I, I think, you know, sometimes that's the value of maybe having that type of relationship because i had i had i not i may have i may be just as traumatic to my children i don't know correct i mean this is where the teaching of the buddhas the brahma vihara you know the loving kindness compassion um appreciative joy and equanimity um they come in and help us to speak uh with compassion to Mm. treat people with respect and to love them for who they are and that's the one thing, that's another thing that I, I, I would bring that into the prison to help this population because they needed that. Yeah, they probably ne- they may have never received that. Probably not. You know? you know? So that's why I was told that each time that we visit, it was almost like a family visit. Ah. But then when we left, it felt that's, that the, 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 the other feeling, you know, start to sink in and they felt sad. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I can see that. I, I'm so thankful for the work that you do. I mean, I really am. I'm I'm fascinated by it. I'm interested in it, and uh, I hope other people will be too. What is, what types of ways do you receive rep- support from people, um, and what types of things are you looking for for people who do want to support what you're doing? 
Well, um, they can donate to uh, you know on the website yeah. to our nonprofit, or they can send check to our nonprofit, which is on our website. Or if they live close by, they can help us to you know once the prisons open up to volunteer to go visit. Um, let's say with the mail, you know, I'm primarily I'm the only person that could help with that as well. Yeah. And what about books? I mean, do Pete, do y'all accept donations too? If there's up from approved books? Oh yes, definitely. Uh, we receive books that are approved by by the prison. You know, it yeah. cannot be any book. And I prefer, you know, like, that's why I don't. I only offer books that are approved by uh, the prison's board of hearing. It's more useful to them. Yeah. It's not these guys and the folks that who are who will be coming in the future. Yeah. And I find you know, and all the. Or books on meditation that can help these people to deal with their issues. Yeah, that's excellent. We'll make sure we put, I'll put a link to any of that information in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'd like to add before we end is the question that you asked, like giving back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know that you, um, one thing that I do, that I want to give back, and I didn't think, you know, before even about the prison work. Is for us, you know, we live on donation, right? And at the beginning of my uh, life with the monks, uh, I was on my own. And the thing is, in in Asian countries, you live on donation, and you don't have to worry about income. But not in America, because we don't have a Buddhist population. Uh, <laughs> we only have one percentage of the people who are Buddhist. Right. You know. I, I didn't struggle, you know. I live frugally, and um, but for the past three years, I was able to receive some donations to help me do what I do. But my, uh, you know, with all the education that I got, I want I get most of them. I got it for free, except the MBA. So my goal is: this is a country that I wasn't even born with. That compared to millions of people, I have been very fortunate. So my goal is to give back of everything, my time. When one day I retire. My money would go to charity to give to this. Hearing you say that, I mean, that's something that we, I think we, and I say we, meaning people who were born in this country and perhaps have grown up with a a type of privilege that we don't even realize that we've had. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I, I've, hear your story and and i i was just talking about this with my wife last night because i was anticipating our talk today and i told her i said you know one of the things that he said is that he wants to give back you know that he has a debt to society a debt Mm -hmm. you know that you want to pay pay back and i thought you know it's so fascinating because those of us who grew up with privilege and just have been here so Mm -hmm. often we we can it can be squandered away and then not really we don't really appreciate it and then many of us just don't give back we just sort of take what's ours and live our lives and that's it you know we don't pay back because we don't think that we owe anything and i find it fascinating that you coming from your situation that you do that it actually generates a desire to give back so there's just something in there there's a recipe for that in there and i think that's part of just having an awakened heart or a loving heart. I mean, your heart has been activated. And once it was, you know, you want to pour it back into people and to the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's part of the, the Buddha's teaching on gratitude, right? He said the, the people who practice gratitude are the people with reputation and integrity. Mm. That, that sets it all. And so, 
I I give whatever I can. Even whoever you you know the folks inside prison, I don't know them. Right. Never know them. And and but I have to treat them in such a way with respect and offer do what I can to help them to release the dukkha. That's beautiful. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm hey there, good news listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So look, there's a part of this show I didn't tell you about. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a fun it's a like a kind of fun part maybe. <laughs> but I'm sure you can see this right here. This is a fishbowl. Okay. And it's full of questions. Mm-hmm. And these questions have sort of accumulated over time. There's 400 questions in here. <laughs> and what I do with each guest at the end of the show is I pull three questions out. Mm-hmm. And then I ask those questions. So I give up my role and let the fishbowl do the, the question asking. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Your first question is, this is interesting. Okay. Describe your worst fear. <laughs> I don't, do you I have don't one? Know. I don't know if I have one. Um. Well, I'm afraid of heights. I Me don't know too. If that, counts. that counts. Um, yeah, but you know, like with with my, you know, when I was little kids, we did stupid thing. I'm not sure if I would. I think that I would be afraid to be exposed of that, but I don't know if that counts. That was too long ago. Yeah. No, I understand. I um, I don't talk to too many people who are afraid of heights. I didn't even realize I was afraid of heights till I was an adult. Uh, but I could tell, I kept, I would always tell my wife, I said, just watching videos of people Mm -hmm. like trail riding on thin trails or anything like that, I would get a weird feeling in my body, um, like a vibration almost, or a sense of not nausea, but just a a weird feeling shaking or yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, right. Exactly. Like clenched up. And, um, I started realizing that just from watching other people do high things. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, that's strange. And then uh, I was even climbing like a ladder up in a tree too high. I would be like, man, I've got that feeling again. So I said, you know, it's not like I could even really, I wasn't even sure about it at first. <laughs> but, yeah. I have a speak of ladder. You know, I would never climb to the top. I was one, one or two below that because <laughs> yeah. I cannot, because otherwise I would freeze. My legs would give out. So, no. <laughs> yeah, you know what I told somebody one time? It's so interesting. I said, you know, it's like, and I don't know if this is the best way to describe it. I said, but I have this, I think the fear, if I could articulate it, is that I'm going to climb up to the edge of like, let's say the edge of a high bridge. And then my mm-hmm. mind is just going to throw me off. Like, I'm going to have no control over it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that you don't want to fall off, but I'm going to throw you off. Like, it was like this strange fear that there was going to be this um, almost like takeover of me and I was just going to fall to my doom. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> strange, strange. I get it, though. I understand. 
Um, this is a good question. On another note, what's your happiest memory from childhood? Um, All things considered, I mean, your childhood was... Yeah, I don't know if I had much. Well, I would say... Um, my my grandma, my mom's mom, passed away when I was 10 years, 9 or 10 years old. And to be with her, you know, because she was, to me at the time, she was very kind and uh, compassionate. I guess that was the few moments that I was happy. Being shown love by your grandmother. Yes. Yeah. yeah. My my mom was compassionate in a way, but she never showed it. Mm. You know, like we never hugged, even coming over to America. Really? The only time that I got to hold her hand was at her death the night before she died. So there wasn't a touchy-feely, huggy... Not in the Asian culture, not in yeah. my generation. We we never said I love you. We never hugged. Never. Even when I post my birthday, you know, we never celebrate birthday mm. until I was fifteen. I was very sick, and the fortune teller said, "You got to do something, otherwise he's going to die." <laughs> and she wow. she made some sweet dessert, and she sewed a new set of pajamas for me, and that was the only celebration that I had my eighteen years wow. in Vietnam. Wow, man, that is interesting. Yeah. So anytime someone did show you that type of uh, affection, I would say, maybe, it probably stood out. Oh, yeah, I got emotional. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because my wife's family, they're very affectionate. They hug and kiss and hold each other, and uh, and they they're, they get together a lot. My family uh, used to, when we were little, when I was little, but it changed, and it was mostly because of things related to my dad, you know? People just started not coming around as much, and group gatherings sort of diminished. And so at some point, my family sort of developed a callousness, you know, where we didn't hug and kiss, and it was very uncomfortable. And so when I met my wife, and they were all so loving, it was almost a shock to me, you know? I was like, I didn't know how to deal with it, to be honest. I was like, oh, y'all are hugging. What's going on, you know? <laughs> yeah, we don't get, you know, touchy feely, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why, like, you know, with my nephews and nieces, you know, I hug them. They say, I love you, you yeah. know, uh, to give them, to let them know. Yeah, you, you make an effort to make that comfortable for them. That's good. Right. I understand right. that. That's, again, mm -hmm. there's that's a type of suffering, yeah, that you can alleviate, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, this is a simple question, but I like it. It says, what's something that always makes you smile? <laughs> Um, I don't know. <laughs> I guess when when I see people happy, yeah, when I see people or, or what I do with let's say the phone side prison when when it make them smile, I'm happy. Yeah, that's uh, all. That's that's beautiful actually. Mm -hmm. When I see people happy, I'm happy. I like that. You've smiled yeah. a lot in this conversation too. <laughs> I try, you know, yeah, well, you know, this is what we call appreciative joy, right? We share the joy of others. Yeah, appreciative joy. joy. Yeah. I like that. I'll remember that for sure. Mm -hmm. So if people do want to help and they want to contact you, what's what do you mm -hmm. prefer? What's the best way for them to get? Would it be to go to the website? 
I mean, one is the website. We also have a one eight hundred number. Um, is eight seven seven nine nine zero seven four five five. That they can call and leave a message. Or sometimes I answer that when I'm not busy. I answer the call. Okay, and y'all mm-hmm. have a pretty heavy social media presence, or is it primarily through your personal account? It's through my personal. We just get a. A small grant to get us promote, and actually, we hire a formerly incarcerated guy oh, to great. help get on the social media because I didn't have time. Yeah. So I started the Instagram uh, and um, the Twitter. Okay. We just have to get more to do it. I just haven't got, forgot the time, and I need to hand it over to him. Yeah. Well, I'll put links to all of that stuff on the show, and uh, I, I am so thankful for you taking the time and and uh, allowing our relationship to happen, and uh, I'm going to spread this as far as I can. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you and, and, and your work and you know helping us out. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Venerable De Hong. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news slash donate, where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.